Okay, everybody, let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Somebody opens the Pew Bible and tells me the page number, or I'll shout that out really quickly, and you can turn right there in the Pew Bible. 57, page 57 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. We're going to study this scene from the book of Exodus. Exodus. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because of Marah. Uh, I'm sorry, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the wall. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind. Give us grace to understand this passage well. And I pray that you would help us to understand why trying circumstances come to us, especially when we follow you and end up finding ourselves in a trying circumstance. Help us to see what you're trying to accomplish in those and through those. And help us also to see that as gracious as the terms of this covenant were, the people of Israel could not keep it, nor can we. We need another provision. We need something beyond ourselves. We need the living water. We need the bread of life. We need you to obey for us the commands of the covenant and then impute that righteousness to us as we exercise our faith in you. Help us to see that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a few situations for you I want you to consider. Imagine a journalist sending an article off to his editor. The editor responds, I think it's a good article, but there are three little points of logic in here that need to be tightened up, and if you do so, you'll have yourself a great article. And imagine the journalist replying, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you to fix my article. I asked you to publish it. Or imagine an athlete, a cross-country runner, sitting down with her coach. And her coach says, over the last three races, in the last half mile, you faded badly. Let's change your diet and change your training regimen so that you can remain strong the last 800 meters of the race. And she says to her coach, I didn't ask you to change my diet or my training. I asked you to cheer me on 
and support me as I get to the last 800 meters. Or imagine a person going to the doctor for their annual checkup, and the doctor says, hey, uh, ran the blood work. Your cholesterol is high. We need to get that down for you to be healthy. And imagine you saying to the doctor, I, I, didn't, I didn't ask for you to heal me. I just asked for you to sign this piece of paper that I did the Now, in each of those three circumstances, you would say that's absurd, wouldn't you? If you go to an editor, if you go to a coach, if you go to a doctor, you expect them to try to help you. Their job is to make you better. Their job is to heal you. Their job is to get the most out of you. And I'm sorry to say that as easy as it is to see that attitude with these three situations, we're often blind to it when we exercise our relationship with God and say the same thing to him. We come to God and we say, God, I want to follow you. But God is a physician. God is a healer. Part of following God is listening to God. Part of following God is hearing his correction. God is in the business of taking us from broken to whole. Now, what I found is that Christians are very good at admitting their need in general. I'm a sinner. And I need to be fixed. You can go a long time without hearing anybody disagree to that. They'll agree to that in general terms. But as soon as God sends a circumstance or a person to point out a specific problem in a person's heart, you, ma'am, have a jealousy problem. You, sir, have an integrity problem. As soon as a specific is pointed out, what do we do? We grumble. We say to the person dispatched to help us, I didn't ask you for that. I asked you to support me, to pray for me. And we forget all along that God is in the business of healing our specific flaws our specific needs. And right here in this passage, God is leading his people into a knowledge of him. And he reveals a specific need that they have, yes, for water, but a deeper, more specific need. And he tells them, part of knowing me, part of following me is listening to me. And I will be your healer. God will tell us that there's Forgiveness for those specific things that we do. And he has an agenda to heal us of those specific things. And this was the lesson he had for the Israelites in Exodus chapter 15. We've entitled this sermon, The Lord, Your Healer. And that's taken, of course, from verse 26 of this passage. I am the Lord, your healer. But let's get a little introduction down before we move on. Some of you are jumping into the middle of Exodus 15. And you're jumping on a treadmill that's already running. And so let's get you up to speed. Israel has been delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. The plagues have loosened their, the bonds of slavery, and they flew like a bird from the nest. They journeyed along, and next thing you know, they found themselves trapped 
on the banks of the Sea of Reeds. Our text translates it the Red Sea, but there they are. God opens the Red Sea. He uses a great and strong and mighty wind. The water stacks up on one side. The children of Israel pass through on dry ground. Israel's chariots follow. God disassembles the chariot wheels as they go in. They drove with difficulty. And then once the Israelites were safely on the other side, the water rushes in, destroys the Egyptian army. And what did we learn last week that Israel did? Having seen up close and personal their salvation, their deliverance, they did what people do when they're truly saved. They sing, they worship. There's a worship song made spontaneously, almost on the spot. And we find out that the men and the women have already developed a song where the men sing and the women repeat, and it's this beautiful act of praise. And here, the people of God are rejoicing and praising and thanking God for his deliverance. What a scene. If only the story stopped there. But it doesn't. Because Exodus is a story about knowing God. It's about worshiping God. And God has so much more to do with these people. And so, it's time to begin that three-day journey. Right here in our text. In verse 22, it says, They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness. If you're keeping score at home, that three-day marker should be important. That goes all the way back to 318 when Moses tells the people of Israel, we want to journey three days into the wilderness to worship. Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go three days into the wilderness, and it's repeated again in 827. Well, now the time has come. Three days into the wilderness to worship the Lord. Also, this is the first of five scenes of impossibility. There's five of them in a row. Let's look at them, if you will. Look at chapter 16. This is bread from heaven. The Israelites have no food. Then we come down to chapter 17. And now there's not only bitter water, but there is no water. They have to get it from a rock. And then in chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, there's a military crisis. Amalek is fighting against Israel, and Israel isn't, they're not trained warriors, they were slaves. And it requires divine intervention to get them out of this military crisis. And then go to verse 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, of Midian comes down. And turns out there's civil chaos. The country, the nation is ungovernable. Moses is spending all of his time settling petty disputes, and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. And so there's Five distinct scenes of impossible circumstances. And in each scene, God allows the impossibility. God allows the frustration. God allows the disappointment. And in each scene, God makes provision after he raises the need. This is part of the pattern of God. I want everybody to pause with me mentally. Go back to the creation account. It says that God created everything. Everything was good. And then he 
saw that man was alone. And after saying everything is good, 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 he says, it is not good that man should be alone. What is the very next thing God does? Does anybody remember? Anybody remember? Yes, Charlotte. No. <laughs> the very next thing God did, and I knew somebody would say that, Charlotte. And so, believe you me, that's what almost everybody else here was thinking. Okay? So you're not alone. What did God do next after he said, it's not good that man should be alone? Does anybody remember? That's right, Anna. He had Adam name the animals. And after Adam named all the animals... Adam said, wait a minute, there's nobody for me. God knew the need. And then God took an extra step of having Adam discern his own need. And then God fulfilled the need. And so, right here, God is keeping the same pattern. There's a need that they have, and God is actually going to lead them into an intense awareness of their need, maybe more intensely than they wanted. But there's five of these circumstances, and we're going to study the first one today. So let's get to our first point, a need unmet, a need unmet. This is in verses 22 through 24. Let's look at our very first, the very first words of our passage today, Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Moses is leading the people, but he's leading by following. And right here in the very first sentence, we see that there's tension between Moses and the people of Israel. Apparently, after seeing Pharaoh's army killed and the dead bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the sea, and after having some water there present, sitting there on the seashore, they thought that that would be a great place for them to hang out for a while. But God had other plans. As we said, God wanted to lead them three days into the wilderness for worship. And apparently, as the cloud, as the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, got up to move, the people of Israel wanted to disregard that leading. And it took Moses some prying to get those people to move, it says that Moses made Israel set forth. This is a word that is an intense word. It refers to mining rocks from deep in a quarry. Imagine doing that in the ancient world before the invention of equipment, like heavy equipment that we would use today. With great effort, you could get large stones out of the ground. Take prying and animal power and pulleys and so forth. Great effort to get something like that to move. And this word that's already an intense word is further intensified. In other words, Moses was, was really working hard to get these people to get up and move and follow the pillar, the cloud or the pillar of fire. It took Moses some effort. But Moses, as we learned, was simply following. And I have that cross-reference, Exodus 13, 21 and 2. He's, he's looking up at this divine manifestation of Yahweh, and he says, it's moving, we've got to move that way. 
people are like, no, no, we like it here. So Moses had to pry them up and get them moving. And so we see that this was a journey that people didn't really want to take. And then when they can't find water, you can imagine the grumbling because they didn't want to move to begin with. But the key is that the Lord was the one who was leading them. And the Lord leads them straight into the wilderness, the wilderness of Shur. Now this is a large area, and if you would like a pun for the day, we're not really sure where the wilderness of Shur is. There you go. I'm not a man for puns, but that was my best effort. It's a large area. We know that it's away from the coast. It's a it's it's probably on the eastern side of that Sinai Peninsula. That's where scholars, that's where their best guess is today. It's hot, it's arid, it's mountainous, there's a lot of ravines. It can be very breezy and uncomfortable. And this is where the Lord led them. And I want us to be clear that the Lord is leading them into a disappointment. The Lord is leading them into a disappointment. They get up and they move. You can imagine how much effort it would be to carry enough water for people to drink for three days, much less enough water for all your flocks and all your herds. It would have taken an enormous amount of work to carry sufficient water for animals along with and they get three days into the wilderness, and at first, they're unable to find water. They get three days in, they can't find a spring, they can't find a lake, they can't find anything. It was a few years ago, there's a pastor down in, um, down in town. He, he used to, he's a very competitive uh, marathoner. In fact, I think he ran the U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon. His son is also an elite runner. Ran the Olympic trials for the um, steeplechase. I got a call from him one day. He said, Greg, I'm, I'm out in the Skyline Trail. We've been running 20 miles, and we're out of water. Can you meet us at the North Ogden Divide Trailhead and bring water? And I was like, sure. I, I had this huge cooler. I filled it full of water and Gatorade, more water than I thought any two people could drink. I put it in front of them, and they downed all of that water and all of that Gatorade immediately. It was, they were, they were thirsty. It was impressive. Equally impressive that they'd been running 100 miles. Well, they can't find anything. The springs are dried up. Moses used to live in this part of the world, and I'm sure as he was walking around, he's like, I remember there was a spring just over here. They'd come around the corner and nothing there. He'd say, man, a decade ago, there was a watering hole right over here, and they'd get there, and there'd be nothing there. And disappointment upon disappointment, and the dwindling stocks of water, and babies are crying. Children don't have what they need, and animals are starting to get parched. And suddenly, they round a corner, or come over a, a divide, perhaps, and they see water. They see some sort of lake or pond or whatever it might be. They get down to it and put a cup in and bring it to their lips and realize that it's unpotable. 
the text doesn't tell us what exactly made it unprofitable. The text only says that it's bitter. It had some sort of foul or pungent odor to it, apparently. There was some sort of mineral buildup, and not even the animal could drink it. Now, friends, the you know this, the only thing worse than not having a need met is to have a need promised and then have that promise go wrong. And so they come around this corner, they see promise, and they arrive at this pond or lake or whatever it is, it's a large group of people, and the water is bitter. The word bitter is used both for the object itself and for the response that it has. The fruit was bitter and that you handed me bitter fruit made me bitter against you. <laughs> Same word. And that's probably why Moses and the people chose to use this. The water left them feeling embittered and left them feeling embittered toward the man who led them there. And Israel grumbles. Now there's irony here, of course, right? Because in the previous chapter, water was their deliverance. Water was their savior. And now, poisonous water will be their destruction. A lack of potable water will be the thing that hurts them. And they have this spiritual amnesia. They can't remember that the God who controlled that water can control this water. And so quickly have they forgotten in their need and in their disappointment. And this becomes a recurring spiritual problem. They grumble at Moses when he can't find food. They grumble at Moses when he can't find water again. They grumble at Moses because they have too much of a certain kind of food or not enough of a different kind of food. They grumble that Moses is the one who hears from the Lord. They grumble that Aaron is the one who's appointed as a priest the people begin to grumble and grumble and grumble all the time. And this is not the first time they've grumbled. We've seen this before. But here is where the grumbling begins to go to another level. And it's only going to get worse from here. But what we need to know is that this God bringing them to this place of disappointment, God bringing them to this pond or lake where the water was bitter. That was a test. It says right here in the passage that God was testing them. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Now, before we move on to our next point, we can put that on the screen, which is a test disregarded. A test disregarded. We need to talk about what a test means. here. We can think of a test as sort of a hurdle. Uh, something that you have to get over. You can have a 400 meter hurdle. They put hurdle race. They put so many hurdles out on the track. You got to jump over the hurdles or kick them over if you want. But you got to get over them, get past them, get through them. And it's simply an obstacle for an obstacle's sake. Simply a test for a test's sake. But that's not the idea here. That's not the idea here. The idea here is more like a test as in an examination. The purpose is to show you something. Okay? 
Let me give a few examples. The professor gives his students a test before they study the material so that he can figure out what they know and what they don't know. The professor doesn't count it against their grade. He doesn't count it for it or against it. What he's trying to figure out is what he needs to teach. Or another example, a doctor will run a blood test. Not because they want to stick you with a needle and make you hurt, though sometimes I've had my suspicions. They're doing that to find out what's in there. They'll say, let's see what this reveals. They want to see what's going on in your body. Some of you will take your the little dreaded orange check engine light comes on. <laughs> and so you drive, maybe some of you have a tester, maybe some of you don't. I just go down to AutoZone or whatever and use their free one. And the whole time I'm driving down, I'm thinking, this is going to reveal the code. And that code will tell me whether this is a $20 fix or a $200 fix. It's not a hurdle. It's a revelation. Does that make sense, everybody? That's what God says this test is. It's a revelation. It's a scene where God is trying to show Israel something about themselves, and then he's going to show something about himself. It's a revelation. It's a test. He's showing them what's in them, and he's showing them what he's like. And so, as we move forward, God supplies this need. Moses cries out to the Lord. The people are grumbling against him. I'm sure he thought they were going to stone him or something. And it says that God showed him a log, a big tree. Uh, we don't, it, it just says a, a tree, uh, probably a downed tree, a log of some type. It doesn't say whether it's big or small. But God does something very gracious. It was Moses who got them moving. It was Moses who pushed them and made them move. And then God uses Moses to supply their need. In other words, God was commending Moses in front of all the people by using Moses to meet their need. And so Moses takes this log and he throws it in the water and the water becomes sweet. It becomes very good to drink and the people can drink and the animals can drink. God used a mechanism. He used Moses and he used a mechanism. He used this wood, not because there was something special in the wood. He wasn't, it, it, the, the, the chemical compound of the tree wasn't offsetting the bitterness of the water. It wasn't that at all. It was more like God was giving them something visual to rest their faith on. Let me show you what I can do. The log is picked up, the log is thrown in, the water becomes sweet. God used a means to help them. And with this deliverance, with this supply of their need, God reveals their hearts. He shows them how untrust, how, how little trust they have in him. He shows them how quick they are to complain. He shows them how faithless they are toward their leader Moses. He shows them that they don't really understand what it means to know God or what it means to follow God. It seems to have surprised them that they needed to go three days' journey into the wilderness, as he said they would. God is showing them how dependent they are on him. He's showing them good deficiencies and bad. 
But what's important to remember is that it was God who led them into the situation of this desperate need. It was God who made their bodies to need water to begin with. It was God who established the need. It was God who created the need. It was God who highlighted the need. And it was God who met the need. And in that process, God was showing them something about themselves that they didn't really want to see. And the next thing that God does is he unveils his purposes. Now, this is a very important thing. Everybody read with me the second half of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The order here is very important. God brought them to this place of desperation. He met their immediate need. Now it's easy to have your eyes skip over ahead. Oh, they ended up in this desert oasis with 12 springs of water, a bunch of palm trees, vacation spot. How good God it, it was for God to provide. No, no, no. God brought them into this need. God brought them to this place of desperation to provide a teaching moment about himself. The whole purpose of this need, of this thirst, was to teach them something about himself and about what it means to follow him. If you follow me, you're going to find yourself in places of deep need. If you listen to me, you're going to wind up in places maybe you wouldn't necessarily desire. But I will meet your need. I will take care of you. I am faithful. I will not lay upon you the plagues that I laid upon the Egyptians. This scene was a teaching moment about the character and nature of God we have four things that we can draw from this. Number one, God is a teacher. Following him means eager listening. He says right here, he says, if you will diligently listen to me. The construction here is a double. If listening, you will listen to me. In other words, if you will intensely listen to me. The picture here is a person cupping their hand over their ear and straining their neck and listening to the Lord. If you will listen to me, following God, knowing God means listening to him. And when you listen, you'll find out that God is compassionate. He says, if you listen to me, if you, if you obey me, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. I'm not vindictive. Yes, you're going to yes you're going to disobey but in the instructions that I'm giving you I make allowances for that I make 
opportunities for you to have your sins covered, to have your sins redeemed. If you listen to me, you'll not only know how to live, but you'll learn how to gain my atonement when you do go sideways. And God isn't vindictive. He's not throwing upon them punishments when they're, in fact, listening. God is trustworthy. He tells them, I, I, I will supply your need. I will meet this. And, and when you find yourself in a difficult spot, by the leading of God, might I say that is when God is particularly attentive to your needs. I'm going to mention this passage later, but just as an illustration of what I was just mentioning. Jesus had just fed the masses. They wanted to make him king. Do you remember this? And the disciples were like, yeah, let's make him king. And Jesus is like, uh-uh. And he drove the disciples down to the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, and he put them in a boat and said, row to the other side. And they obeyed and started rowing to the other side. They were fully obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what happened? What happened? They found themselves in the middle of a widowmaker, of a storm. And they were so afraid. Their boat was getting swamped. They were certain that they were going to die. And then Jesus walks on the water to them. And says, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? They weren't harmed. They didn't drown. Jesus even brought them to the other side of the seashore immediately. They were there in the middle of that storm because Jesus put them there. And when they were in the middle of that storm, their fear rose up. The test was showing what was inside of them. And even in so doing, Jesus was particularly attentive to what they needed at that moment. And he preserved them all along the way. Now, God shows that he is also a healer. God says that he intends to fix our hearts. He says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. God is our physician, our great physician. Following him means listening to him. And when we listen to him, we're going to hear some specific things where we fall short. And in those specificities, God doesn't want us to fight against him. He wants us to submit to him and listen to him and hear him. And God will heal those. God will make those whole. God will turn what before were weaknesses into strengths. If we will but listen diligently the voice of the Lord. Now, God then supplies them some safety. Mara was apparently unsuited for a long-term stay, and so they pick up and they move on, and they go to a place with 12 uh, springs, one for each tribe, and the people find this beautiful oasis. Now, on this last point, I want to just highlight one thing. There's something disturbing in the text. And it's disturbing because of its absence. 
what's the thing that's missing from this? The thing that's missing is gratitude. The people don't say, thank you. Oh, thank you for getting us out of that. Thank you for providing us water. There's no songs of praise recorded here. You brought water from the rock. You, well, that's in a future chapter. You, you, you turned the bitter water sweet. There's no songs of 12 pools of water, 12 springs, and a beautiful setting. No, no. There's still this entitled heart. There's still this heart of entitlement. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But here, this disturbing trend kind of hangs over the text. The people are ungrateful. The people always think that they know more than they do. The people always think they know it all. And that leads them to anger and grumbling. And it shows this heart of entitlement that doesn't give gratitude, even when they see something wrong. Now let's draw a couple conclusions before we wrap up for the morning. Number one, Israel's repeated failures along these lines point us to God's ultimate provision. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 8, Jesus says, I'll give you living water that springs up into eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, referring to the manna. People were hungry after they ate manna. Jesus tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask him for a drink of water and he would give you that water and you would never be thirsty. You see, here God comes to them with a very reasonable point. Just listen to me. Just listen to me. Even if you sin, I'll hold you up. Even if you sin, I will cover your transgressions. All I want you to do is listen to me and I will take care of you. I will preserve you. I will make you my people. I will make you my treasured possession. God is showing that he's willing to go to great lengths to protect his people if they will just listen to him. And that proves to be too much because we're sinners. And if we were in that boat, we would do the same exact thing apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What this passage is showing us is that even given every advantage, we cannot respond, we cannot secure our salvation by works because we are so totally broken. We need God to give us his righteousness. We need God to make ultimate provision for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And these repeated failures prepare us to meet the man who obeyed God's word in every regard. And they prepare us to meet the man who will give us his righteousness simply when we ask for it. And as I said, this is the first of many repeated failures. But these are intended to stack up on us and show us that apart from Christ, we're nothing. Apart from Christ, we're sinners. And apart from Christ, we have no hope, even if given 
every advantage imaginable. It took the work of God to impute his righteousness onto us for us to be made right with him. Number two, God often leads us straight into impossible situations to reveal us to ourselves and to highlight God's provision. That's not a typo, to reveal us to ourselves. Maybe maybe some of you have said this. I was shocked at what came out of my mouth. Have any of you said that about yourself? Or you've said, I'm so disappointed in myself. Or looking back, I can't believe I let myself go that far, get that far. Sometimes what's obvious to everybody else around us is really hard for us to see. And let's say for a moment, let's just say for a moment, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick a, a, a random shortcoming. Okay. Let's say I'm a man who tends to lose things. Okay. <laughs> Total hypothetical. I'm a man who loses things, but I don't know that. Right. Let's say Dirk comes up to me one day and says, "You know, Pastor Greg, you lose things a lot." What do you think my response to Dirk is going to be? No, I don't. Who asked you? <laughs> Maybe you should take the beam out of your own eye, okay? <laughs> if I'm spiritual, I'll come up with some Bible to get out of it, right? So what does God usually do? He puts us in a situation where we can see it for ourselves. And then we go, oh, God, that's me. I need your help. And then we see God beginning to come in and meet that need and help us through. So when the trial comes, don't despise it. See you for yourself. And then allow God's provision to help you through. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to allow trials to highlight for us our needs. And I pray that we would submit to your word with open and contrite hearts. May we see your purposes for us. Some of us are in the thick of a hard one right now, no doubt about it. You, but may they see that you led them there. May they wait on you. May they look to you for the things that you're trying to accomplish in that trial. I pray that if there be any in here who thinks they're good enough, who thinks they can earn their way to you, may the example of the Israelites show them that it's simply untrue, that we're so broken, we're so sinful. We've all fallen short of you, and we need your grace and mercy to be made whole. May they see that and confess that and to ask for it. 
For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.